Well, many of the countries you come from have elections to determine their national leaders. Now, leading up to those elections, if your country does have elections, the various candidates, I am sure, do a lot of time campaigning. And their goal is to convince you, to convince the other people of the country that they are the best candidate for the position, that they have the best ideas, they have the best solutions, and they're going to do the most to help the country. Now, those candidates are competing against one another to earn your vote, to, to earn your loyalty. Now, this does not just happen in political campaigns. Uh, our whole world is one of competing ideas and competing views of the world. Well, the world is full of different religions that make different truth claims. There are others who would say that there is no God at all, that there are, they are not religious, that there is no God, and that the world is all there is. Uh, science may be their highest form of truth because they believe there is no supernatural. Now, still others say that there is no objective truth, that there is no final standard of right and wrong, and everyone should be able to do what they feel is best. Well, in one way or another, these different views of the world, these different views other than Christianity, other than the truth of the Bible, well, they are in competition with the Christian worldview. They are in some ways campaigning against Jesus Christ, and they are seeking to win your loyalty. They are trying to convince you of their truthfulness and win you to their side. Now, friends, our, our world is a battleground of ideas. Now, the same was true in the world of the Colossians. The Colossians written a couple thousand years ago. The same thing was true in their day. I remember the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to warn the Colossians about false teaching, false ideas that were circulating in the world around them. He was writing to, to strengthen their faith so that they would not be led astray and they would continue to hold fast to Christ. And so in our verses today, the Apostle Paul writes, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. My friends, Paul knew that there is a constant, constant temptation for us to be deceived to be taken captive by the, the false ideas of the world in which we live, even in subtle ways. He knew that there was a danger that we might be won over by their constant campaign. And that comes through TV, it comes through the news, it comes through our, our, our friends, it just comes in the world in which we live. But we understand this danger simply by our own experience. Uh, many of you probably know people who at one time claimed to be Christians, but eventually abandoned the faith. They were won over. Uh, others have tried to redefine or reshape Christianity to accommodate some of these competing views. How can I be both LBGTQ plus affirming and a Christian? Well, Paul's antidote to all these false claims is found in verse 6 and 7 of our text. So then... Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. And we're going to kind of think about this idea for the entirety of the sermon, but in, in summary, how do you resist being drawn astray by the influences of the world? 
It's to be intimately familiar with Jesus Christ. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 6 of Colossians chapter 2. You can uh, find this in your Bibles, but we also have the text printed in the bulletins available in the back table if you would like. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us, opposed to us, and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. My friends, the main idea of this passage and, and therefore this sermon is do not be lured away from Christ because the fullness of spiritual life is to be found in him alone. I have three points for you to consider from today's text. The first is walking in Christ, that idea that Paul puts out there right at the beginning. The second is to resist being lured away from Christ. And then the third is our union with Christ. Walking in Christ, resist being lured away from Christ. And then third, our union with Christ. So first, walking in Christ. In verse 6 of Colossians chapter 2, we find the central command of this chapter. Really, in some ways, the central command of the entire letter. It's actually the first command that Paul gives in the entire letter. Which is, so then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord continue to walk in him. Uh, Paul had opened his letter, if you remember back a few weeks ago, by praying that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that they may walk worthy of the Lord. And now Paul is commanding them to walk worthy of the Lord. And following that, that opening prayer and the opening verses of Colossians, Paul went on to speak of the supremacy and the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. And then as we saw last week, Paul turned his attention to his own suffering and labor on behalf of the Colossians. And that now, by God's grace, they had access to all the riches of complete understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Well, therefore, or as Paul writes at the beginning of verse 6, so then, for all these reasons, for the, the greatness of Jesus Christ, for the access that you now have to Jesus Christ, Continue to walk in Christ. As Paul wrote last week, it is in Christ who are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Therefore, so then, Christian, you should seek to be filled with the knowledge of him, to continue to, to follow him, to submit to him. You know, the Colossians had, had placed their faith in Christ. They had received him. They had recognized him for who he is, the one with all authority. 
the one who has first place in everything. But more importantly, as we see in verse 6, they had submitted to his authority. They had received Christ Jesus as Lord. As one commentator put it, they were then, what they were then to do was to work out just what it meant in both their thinking and their acting to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is exhorting them to do, to work out just what it meant in both their thinking and their acting to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, Friends, there is no true salvation. There is no true salvation apart from recognizing and receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. Surrendering and and submitting to Jesus is the only proper response to his authority. There is no such thing as believing in Jesus and placing your faith in Jesus if you are not willing to submit your will to his will. If you are not willing to obey him, listen to him, and and follow him. Friends, the, the evidence and assurance of your salvation is not words that you may have once said in a prayer. It's not the the baptism that you may have received at some point in in your life. Friends, the evidence and assurance of salvation is that you continue to submit to Jesus as ruler and master and king. Friends, Jesus demands that to follow him you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, and you must follow him. You must receive him as Lord. And continue to to walk in him and and follow him as Lord. Uh, In verse 7, in verse 7, Paul explained what it looks like to continue to walk in Christ. To walk in Christ is to be rooted and built up in him. In John chapter 15, verses 4 through 5, Jesus says this to his disciples. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you, neither can you produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Friends, the the fullness of spiritual life is found in Christ alone. When you are saved, you are united to Jesus Christ. We're going to think about that more later. You are united to Jesus Christ when you are saved. You might say that you are rooted in him. And therefore, to continue to, to grow in him and walk in him, you must stay firmly connected to him. That's that picture of the vine and the, the branches. You must continue to look to him for your spiritual nourishment. As the psalmist puts it in Psalm chapter 1, you are to read and meditate on Scripture so that you might be like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season. And friends, as you stay connected to Jesus Christ, you will be established in the faith. Now at our house back in the United States, there was a section of our yard where we lived, or a section of our garden, where the grass had not fully filled in. There were bare spots, patches of dirt. Now, a few different times, a few different seasons, I went out there and planted grass, hoping to fill in those bare spots. That grass would always sprout and look healthy for a time, but it would never survive for long. That grass never became fully established or healthy. And now perhaps if I had been a more devoted gardener, 
uh, things would have been different. If I had tended to that grass more, if I had watered it more, maybe if I had researched more to see the proper type of grass to plant. But those grass roots, they never took full hold. They never became established. So when the, the heat of the, the summer would finally come, they would die. And they would wither away. Now, friends, your faith needs to be established. It needs to be strengthened. It needs to take full root that it might grow. And notice what was the, the, the Colossians were to be established in. Notice what was to strengthen and nourish them that they might be built up. Well, friends, it is the faith that they had been taught. It was the, the gospel that had been delivered to them. Well, friends, there can be a great temptation to think that you need something new in order to grow spiritually. In order to grow spiritually, I must get something new. Now that I'm a Christian, I need something more than the gospel. I need something beyond the word of God. I need something new in order to grow. Well, some people need, think they, they need a, a constantly new or fresh experience with the Lord. And their idea of worship becomes chasing the next emotional high. Well, like some people chase after the latest dieting or exercise fad. Well, some Christians are constantly in search for the next or latest religious practice that, that promises to bring them closer to, to God. Uh, the latest devotional that's published. The, the latest Christian trend that is out there that promises to bring them closer to God. Now, some people believe they need a new or fresh word from the Lord. They chase visionary experiences, as Paul puts it in Colossians 2.18, looking to God to speak to them outside of his word rather than through his word. Others argue that new and fresh interpretations or revelations are needed. They argue that scripture was written thousands of years ago, and so its meaning and its interpretation needs to change to reflect modern times. The question becomes, well, what does scripture mean to me? Instead of, well, what did God intend to communicate? Now, now friends, to be certain, we need to apply scripture to the new issues of today. How might scripture apply to my use of my smartphone? But the meaning of Scripture does not change with the times. We need no new or fresh interpretations or revelations. Instead, we need to pray that God will help us to rightly understand the words of Scripture. And God says one of the roles of His Holy Spirit is to help illumine the words of Scriptures that we might rightly understand them. So as Jude puts it in his letter, in the letter of Jude, we are to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, that was delivered to the saints once for all. We are to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Was delivered once for all. Friends, Christianity is not a search for what is new or novel, but an effort to believe and defend that which has been given by God through the apostles and has been proclaimed and defended and confessed by faithful Christians for the last 2,000 years. One of the, the worst temptations to which a pastor can succumb is the temptation to be fresh or new or novel or unique, to say something that no one has ever said before in an effort to stand out from the crowd or in an effort to, to draw a crowd. And friends, faithful pastoral ministry does not seek to be new or novel or fresh. 
but to simply and clearly deliver the gospel message that was once for all delivered to the saints. Friends, it is not something new that you need for spiritual growth. It's not a new or a fresh revelation. It is something old. It is the gospel that saved you, and it is the timeless truth of God's word. Friends, the the good news is that all this work of rooting and building and establishing is is a work of the Lord. All the verbs that Paul has used up to this point in verse 7 are passive verbs. In other words, they are describing what is being done to and for the Colossians. What is being done to and for you as Christians. If you are a Christian, you were planted by God. He is the one who tends you, who cultivates and prunes you, who builds you up. It is God, by His Spirit, who establishes your faith. Now, certainly as Christians, we are called to to be active in God's work for us. We are to be called to be active alongside of God in that work. But brothers and sisters, what God calls you to do, walk in Him, to continue to walk in Him, He equips you to do. He, He plants you and builds you and establishes you. God is the last word in your salvation. He is the last word in your perseverance. He is the one who keeps you to the end. He is the one who strengthens you to keep walking. Friends, the the only active verb that Paul uses in verse 7, in other words, the only thing that the Colossians are really actually told to do in verse 7, is to overflow with gratitude. Christian, that is your responsibility. Overflow with gratitude. You're, You're to overflow with gratitude for what God has done. That by his sovereign work of of grace, that you have been rooted in him, that you are being established in him, that you are being built up in him. God is the one who accomplished your salvation. And so as one pastor put it, one very clear sign of a Christian who is growing in their maturity is their thankfulness. If you are a complainer or you have an anger problem, Could this be a sign that you really have a thankfulness problem? The kind of Christian maturity Paul has in mind here is walking so closely in Christ, so rooted and established in him that thankfulness simply overflows. Friends, that is the fruit of those who are are walking in Christ. They overflow with gratitude. Friends, is that you? And if not... Perhaps you should ask, what is tempting you away from Christ? What is luring you away from Christ? And that brings us to the the second point of the sermon, that we are to resist being lured away from Christ. Look at verse 8. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. So after commanding the Colossians to walk in Christ, Paul warned them of that which might lure them away from Christ. Like a a fish gets distracted by a shiny lure when you throw it into the water. What was tempting them to go chasing after things other than Christ? The the false teaching that was circulating in Colossae was likely not an outright rejection of Christianity. We'll see that more next week. But something masquerading as Christianity. Something that had the appearance of of wisdom or truth, but that would ultimately lead the Colossians away 
from Christ would ultimately kill their gratitude, would ultimately cause them to begin walking in a different direction, to not walk with Christ, but to walk away from Christ. Well, these competing ideas, what Paul calls philosophies or empty deceits, he says that they were based on human tradition and the elements of this world. Now, it's not entirely clear what Paul means by the elements of the world, but there's a good chance he was referring to the association many in his day made between the material elements of the world, things like earth, wind, and fire, just material things, and the supernatural. So they believed that supernatural forces, gods, angelic beings, that they controlled these elements, that they were connected to them, in some ways they ruled over them and thus had a, a governing authority over the world. In other words, Paul's saying that these teachings were not rooted in Christ, but something else. Uh, something actually at its, course, at, its, at its core, demonic. And I think Paul's reference to human tradition is, is more easily understood. In the Gospels, Jesus actually condemns the Pharisees for abandoning the commands of God to hold on to their human traditions. Now, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the, the Jewish people, they had over generations added and added all sorts of traditions and rules on top of God's law and taught that the outward observance of all these additional rules and regulations was a sign of holiness. It is what brought favor with God. The more strictly you could follow just these accumulated rules, well, the more holy you were. And so as we'll see next week, the, the false teachers in Colossae seem to argue that Christians needed to engage in, in certain Jewish practices to find favor with God. There does seem to be a little bit of a, a Jewish element to this. Jesus' point in, in confronting and rebuking the Pharisees for this was to say that mere outward observance that the Pharisees were engaged in mere outward observance of rules and regulations, and that is no true faith at all. The Pharisees' religion was one full of tradition and regulation that had been passed down, but that they showed no true heart for God, no, no love for God, and actually no, no love for others. So over generations, this focus on outward observance and human tradition pulled the Jewish people away from God. Their identity, you might could say, was, was pulled away from God and became placed more on cultural custom and all these human traditions. Now, brothers and sisters, we all need to be careful because the pull of tradition can be strong. We, we all come from different cultures. We know the pull of our home culture's customs and traditions can be strong. Oftentimes, these practices that our cultures have have been passed down from generation to, to generation. It's how we understand the world. Also, my family and I, we still eat our lunches and our dinners early on more of an American schedule than what most people do here. You probably notice this if you've ever come over to our house for a meal. We appreciate your flexibility and your understanding with having dinner at 6 p.m. when you come and eat dinner with us. And some of our different customs and traditions in our cultures are relatively spiritually insignificant, like what time we eat, or, or what we eat, or even how we eat. But there are other customs and traditions in each of our cultures that would seek to deceive us, that would seek to, to pull us away from Christ. None of our cultures are mirror images to that which is taught in the Bible. For example, there may be some of you who would say that you believe that Jesus is the all-sufficient savior, 
but you're still tempted to worship your ancestors, to turn to them for, for guidance rather than Christ, to pray to them instead of to Christ. Friends, maybe you would say that you believe Jesus is all-powerful, but when a family member or a friend grows sick, you would encourage them to go visit the local witch doctor. Maybe you place some level of of faith in astrology. Maybe you feel pressure to follow some other religious tradition of your home country to fit in because some part of you still fears what will happen if you don't keep practicing that. The Roman Catholic Church wrongly gives church tradition, which is one form of human tradition, the same authority and really more authority than the word of God. One of the consequences of this is that there's a very strong emphasis on that which you must do. The rituals that you must observe in order to please God. If you come from that background, you might have trouble believing that you can please God apart from those rituals. They have in some sense taken you captive. In the United States, where I come from, one of the, the cultural traditions, or it's not so much a tradition, but there's just a strong emphasis on individual freedom. To to accept and receive Jesus Christ as Lord, to submit to him as Lord, to say that there's someone who has authority over my life, does not fit well with that human tradition and that human teaching. It leads many away from Christ. Although the point is that in one way or another, human traditions, man-made religion, they seek to take you captive to draw you away from that which you actually need for spiritual life and spiritual health. And that is Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are a Christian, it is to Jesus that you have been united. And it is to him that you are to hold. And so that brings us to to the third point of the sermon, which is our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. So in verses 9 through 15... Paul gives three reasons why the Colossians should center their lives on Jesus Christ and not be lured away by these philosophies and and empty deceits that were swirling in the, the city and the culture around them. Well, those three reasons are the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, our union or their union with Jesus Christ, the fact that they have been united to him, and third, the the work of Christ. And it is the work of Christ by which they had been united to Christ. So the person of Christ, their union with Christ, and the work of Christ. So look again, starting in verse 9. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with the circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now, friends, Paul first places his focus on the the person of Jesus Christ. He reminded the Colossians again of just who Jesus is. It is in Jesus where the fullness of God's nature dwells bodily. 
I just remember Paul's words from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It is Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. It is Jesus who, by whom, and through whom, and for whom all things were created. Jesus is God. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the great Redeemer. He is God himself. And then Paul goes on to say that if you are a Christian, Jesus has filled you as well. The one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. If you are a Christian, Jesus has filled you as well. In him, you are made complete. As one commentator put it, in him, in Jesus, and in him alone, God has decisively and exhaustively revealed himself. All that we can know or experience, all that we can know or experience of God is therefore found in our relationship with him. Friends, there is no higher knowledge. There is no greater experience of God to be found than in your relationship and in your union with Jesus Christ. No ritual, no tradition, no other experience can compare. Friends, if you have been filled with Christ, what more do you need? He is the one who is the head of all rule and authority. There is no extra protection or extra blessing or extra guidance to be found in turning and praying to your ancestors, in praying to Mary or the saints. It is Jesus who is the head, in control, in authority, over every ruler and authority, both visible and invisible. Friends, what else or who else do you need? Or where Paul is really drawing your attention is to the fact that if you are a Christian, you have been united to Jesus Christ. You have been united to Jesus Christ. To be united to Christ is to receive the blessings of his life, his death, and his resurrection because of your relationship with him. This is what Paul has in view when he says that you have been filled by Christ. He has in view your union with him. As one theologian put it, every aspect of God's relationship to believers is in some way connected to our relationship with Christ. Every aspect of God's relationship to believers is in some way connected to our relationship with Christ. Well, look at verse 11. It was in Jesus that you have been circumcised with a, a circumcision made without hands. Again, as we thought about from, from Jeremiah, that Paul is not talking about physical circumcision. That's not what Paul is talking about here. But what the Bible in several places calls a, a circumcision of the heart. Uh, through your, your union with Christ, your sinful heart or your body of flesh or your old sinful self is, is stripped away. It, it's cut away. By virtue of your union with Christ, you are given a, a new nature. Your sins, your, your old self has been stripped away. It's been cut away. The power of sin has been broken. By the power of the Spirit, you have the ability to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Friends, so close is is your union with Christ, that Paul can write, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It's as if you were buried with Christ, and it's as if you have been raised with Christ. In other words, by virtue of your union with Jesus, you have come to, to share in his death. Friends, because Jesus died for your sin, you have now died to your sin. 
the benefits of Jesus' death have been applied to you. And in the same way, because of your union with Jesus, you have come to share in his resurrection. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, you, Christian, have also been raised from the dead. You both have new spiritual life in him and eternal life in the life to come. When Jesus returns, you will receive a glorified body and be raised with him. Well, Paul connects all of this to baptism because this is the reality that baptism pictures. It is this reality that baptism pictures. Baptism is the visible picture of the Christian's union with Christ. A baptism does not save anyone. It is not the means by which you are united to Christ. And notice that in verse 12, Paul says that it is through faith in the working of God that believers come to share in Jesus' resurrection. A salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. Salvation does not come by baptism or through baptism. Uh, Friends, we are united to Christ by faith. But the reality of this union, of our union with Christ, is pictured in baptism. When someone is dipped under the water in baptism, when they are dipped under the water, it's a picture of them being buried, of them dying with Christ. When they're raised back up out of the water, it's a picture of their new life in Christ, their resurrection in Christ. They come up out of the water as Christ, in some sense, came up out of the grave. Friends, because baptism is a physical picture of our union with Christ, we believe at Emmanuel that baptism should be reserved for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is not for newborn babies, but for those who have been united to Christ in faith. Friends, if, if you believe yourself to be a Christian, but you've never been baptized since becoming a Christian, let me urge you to come talk to me about being baptized. The Bible commands that you be baptized as a sign of your faith, as a sign of your union with Christ. If you've received Jesus as Lord, if you desire to continue to to walk in Christ and obey him as Lord, friends, may I suggest that one of the ways you should do that is to obey him by getting baptized. Being baptized is not something to fear. It's a time for you and the church to celebrate what Jesus has done for you. Friends, that brings us to Paul's third reason for urging the Colossians to continue to walk in Jesus. And that is Jesus' work on their behalf. Friends, it is absolutely clear in verses 13 through 15 that it is God who accomplished their salvation. Christian, it is God who has accomplished your salvation. Just listen again to verses 13 through 15. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Friends, I think it's pretty obvious the one who is performing the actions here. And all of these reasons, too, are related. Our, our union with Jesus is amazing because of who Jesus is. We are united to to Christ, our union with Christ, because comes through Jesus' work on our behalf. The perfect life that he lived, his sacrificial death, his miraculous resurrection. And so it's God's work of redemption in the process of your salvation. It's Jesus' work that is in view in verses 13 through 15. And friends, you were once captive to your sin, totally lost in your sin, spiritually dead, unable and unwilling to respond to God. 
As Paul put it in Colossians 1.21, you were alienated to God and hostile to God. You were an enemy of God. Friends, if you are a Christian, what has God done for you? He forgave all of your sins in Jesus Christ. I think verse 14 is one of the most amazing statements of what Jesus has done for Christians. He forgave our debt of sin by his death on the cross. Your enormous, your unpayable debt to God was paid by Jesus instead. Friends, we're familiar with debt here in the UAE. What happens if you were to overstay your visa here? If you were to overstay your visa, you'll likely not be able to get a job or leave the country until your fine is paid. Your debt must be paid. Friends, the the Bible speaks of all people owing a debt of sin to God. You owe him a, a debt, a payment for your sin. Your sin stands against you. It's opposed to you. It condemns you. Therefore, unless your sin is repaid, you will one day face God's judgment for your sin. Your sin is the evidence that will one day stand against you, just as your visa expiration date is the evidence standing against you if you were to to overstay. Friends, you have no excuse. The evidence is there. And your debt of sin is not a small debt. It's not like you simply overstayed your visa for like 30 days or or 60 days or 90 days. No, it's more like you overstayed your visa for like a thousand years. And really, it's much more than that. It's a debt that you have no hope of ever repaying. Friends, that is why you need Jesus. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God freely forgives the sin debt of anyone who humbles themselves, anyone who repents of their sin, and anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, anyone who receives him as Lord. Their sin is nailed to the cross. They bear it no more. And the reason for that is because Jesus took it in their place. He took their judgment on himself. He paid the debt. Christian, your debt did not just appear. Jesus paid it for you. When something is erased from a page, it doesn't just magically vanish. It is absorbed by the eraser. Uh, Friends, that is what Jesus has done for you. And because Jesus has done this, you you who were dead in your trespasses have been made alive through Jesus Christ. So Christian, if you you regularly struggle with the guilt and shame of your sin, you are a Christian, but you regularly struggle with guilt over past sin, shame over past sin, let me urge you to memorize these verses. Memorize Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, so that you can recite every time, you can recite them every time you struggle with past guilt or past shame. Friends, God has taken your sin, He has taken your shame, and He has nailed it to the cross. You bear it no more. You can freely and fully confess your sin, just as we do here each and every week as part of our corporate worship service. We can freely confess because it no longer stands against us. We can come freely confessing because we have received God's grace. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. If you are here and not a Christian, your debt of sin is only going to keep growing. And one day your life will end, the bill will come due, you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and your sin will stand against you. Friends, the only way to be saved is to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. It is to be united to Jesus Christ, so when you face God's judgment one day, God will look at your record and say, Ah, 
I see my son has paid your debt for you. You owe nothing. And friends, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never submitted to him as, as Lord, well, let me urge you to do that. Today, God is freely offering to forgive your debt of sin. God is freely offering to forgive your debt of sin. Well, our text for this morning concludes with something else that Jesus' work accomplished. Look at verse 15. Through Jesus' work of redemption, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him, in Christ. As in Christ, God triumphed over all the powers of darkness. That is what is meant by, by rulers and authorities. He publicly shamed the devil and his demons and anyone who would align themselves with those powers. They've been disarmed and defamed. Their power has been broken at the cross. And Christian, by virtue of your union with Christ, you share in that victory. You are united to the one who is the head of all rule and authority. You have no need to fear demonic forces. It's not because they are not real. But they are real. They still deceive and influence. Christian, we resist them by walking in Jesus and putting on the armor of God. Not, not praying to ancestors, turning to the witch doctor, or receiving some special anointing from a pastor. Friends, no, Jesus has triumphed. So we can continue to walk in him because he has triumphed. The power of sin has been broken. So friends, the question that, that Paul really leaves you with in these verses, he doesn't state the question, but the, the, the question that Paul kind of leaves you with in these verses is what is it in my life that is competing with Jesus for first place? What is, is tempting me to, to walk away from Christ? What competing philosophy of the world am I tempted to, to believe in? What is distracting me? Where am I tempted to place my confidence and my trust other than in Jesus Christ? Is there something that I think I need in addition to Jesus in order to be saved? Yeah, I need Jesus, but I better make sure that I, I follow all these rules and regulations of, of my culture. What might, tempt be, what might be tempting me to draw away from Christ? Where do I turn for, for guidance or counsel or comfort when I face the trials of life or the big decisions of life? Where do I look for spiritual nourishment for spiritual protection. Where do I look for spiritual life? Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to take time to meditate on those questions this afternoon. Friends, confess those things that compete with Jesus for number one priority in your life. Uh, see the foolishness. From Paul's words here, see the foolishness of trusting in anything else. Friends, remind yourself that it is Christ who is the fuel of the Christian life. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being root up, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. Let's pray.